Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup is politicology favorite, crisis communications consultant and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend, Susan Del Percio. Susan, it's great to see you this morning. Good morning. Great to be with you. Also returning to the roundup is the fantastic and fabulous Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, thank you for making the time again. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with the two of you. On this week's Roundup, the latest in the ongoing Facebook saga as new documents have been leaked, an update on the January 6th insurrection and the connections to Republican lawmakers, the steps toward FDA approval of the COVID vaccines for people as young as five years old, And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we'll talk about the governor's races in New Jersey and Virginia as they head to the ballot box on Tuesday. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get the plus segment and join our community. Let's dig in. Major news sources have continued dropping stories about Facebook using internal documents included in whistleblower reports. Facebook has publicly touted how it has handled COVID-19 vaccine misinformation, and they even scolded Joe Biden for criticizing Facebook's handling of it. Internal Facebook documents show that employees were concerned about how the issue was being handled, and its internal research from 2021 showed that Facebook had no idea about the scale of the COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy problem in its comments, according to CNN. And that same report noted that Quote, our internal systems are not yet identifying, demoting, and or removing vaccine comments often enough, end quote. In March, they noted that their ability to detect vaccine hesitancy comments is bad in English, but almost non-existent in other languages. And all of this comes as the FTC begins looking into the documents to determine whether Facebook violated a 2019 settlement with the agency over privacy concerns. Facebook has struggled to hold on to the Democrats on its lobbying team. According to the Wall Street Journal, Facebook started the year with seven Democrats and eight Republicans on their in-house lobbying team. Three Democrats have since left the company, including the one managing their congressional outreach. And since the start of the year, they've been trying to bring in a big-name Democrat to take on the role of managing their lobbying operations. According to the journal, Democrats who have passed on this Facebook post have included veteran Hill aides, a senior advisor to Joe Biden, and aides to former President Barack Obama, including Valerie Jarrett. This all comes as Facebook plans a name change to the parent company and has laid out long-term plans for their metaverse, a digital reality where people would use avatars to interact with others just as they would offline. So, Lucy, we have to start with you. I am on a I am on a one man mission to modify your views on Facebook, <laughs> whatever the cost. So, let I want to the question I have for you is, what do you see as the most damning revelation of all of the stuff that we've learned just this week, and why does it matter? And feel free to take vaccine misinformation as one of those things. But over just looking at all of the stuff that we've just learned. What do you think is actually going to matter and and why is it bad? 
Well, certainly when I deny that Facebook is a nation state or I don't think that the threat <laughs> of Facebook is as large as, say, Molly McHugh thinks it is, it doesn't mean that I think that, like, you know, Facebook is the friendly mom and pop bakery down the street, right? Facebook obviously has some really serious challenges that are impacting us a lot in globally, nationally. I think I tend to think that the disinformation and problems on Facebook are a reflection of where we are as a as a society and, and less because of Facebook. I think just like Trump or Trumpism, right? It shows, it's, it's symptomatic of the kind of deeper problems in this era. I do think specifically as we sort of pour over the Facebook files and think about what we're learning about Facebook, there are two issues. One, obviously the, the concern that Facebook has been in violation of settlements with regulators over privacy concerns and that in fact Facebook has known that it is very, very damaging to young people in particular. We saw that last earlier this fall with some of the revelations about what Facebook does exactly to teenage girls, Instagram to teenage girls who are in a really tender era. That is going to be a huge issue, I think, from a from a consumer standpoint. And then the revelation that they're losing lobbyists, they're hemorrhaging lobbyists, is a really bad sign of the times of where political insiders see the winds turning for Facebook. My husband and I walk our dogs around DC through fancy neighborhoods like Calorama. And my husband said last night, gosh, the fact that they're, I've seen where these lobbyists live. They are living in these mansions in Washington. They can't turn down Facebook money. It must be so bad. So it's true. These are creatures of Washington who are as bad as you think they are. And even they are like, oh, Facebook, a bridge too far. What seems so strange is that Facebook, you know, there's been a lot of coverage about how this, you know, speculation, this really shows that there's not public trust in the idea that Facebook has a broader mission. And, you know, the metaverse stuff is almost like Mark Zuckerberg's boy dream, right? It's why they've acquired Oculus. It's, it's just it's all, it's so random. But at the same time, even in the face of these horrible, horrible revelations about the impact on children and whatnot, Facebook is publicly making pronouncements as recently as last week that they're going to refocus their whole business model on children, right? And young people, right? So there is definitely, it is it is clear that there are not professional communications grownups in the room at Facebook. There are not professional crisis communications grownups like Susan in the room at Facebook. They're, they're hemorrhaging people and there's no sense of, of where they go next, I think. Yeah, Susan, who is nodding along. Uh, let's get into the vaccine misinformation and anything else you want to weigh on, but how should we be thinking about the role Facebook played in spreading misinformation and how they misled the public on their ability to stop the spread of that misinformation? Well, I think those are two different things in that how the public gets its information, it's our choice. Like, I hate to say it, but we are as much as integrated with Facebook and being part of what makes it go as it what it delivers. And when we, we get upset about, you know, vaccine um, misinformation and how they regulate it, it's it has to be done. But let's not forget there are people putting it out there for the purpose of spreading it. So it's and I'm not giving Facebook an out here, but they are not a publicly regulated utility. They I mean, we have to discuss what we want it to be. Then there's also the culture of Facebook itself, which, from my understanding, um, internally, they are a nightmare to work with because they have their own culture. To Lucy's point, like lobbyists don't want to work there because they can't be effective because what they are told to do, like go make sure like the U.S. Senate leaves us alone. That doesn't work. <laughs> like it's not happening. <laughs> or if you're in the cute comms, you know, make sure there's good stories about us. Make it up. Like they don't. Ha- they really do operate, and that's what this all comes down to: is Mark Zuckerberg and his oper- and the way he thinks of things. And it, it is him, right, Lucy? Like it is his yeah. mindset. Like I just want people to to chat and be yeah. interacting with each other. I don't have to worry about anything else and no one else should worry either because it's just us like as if it's a magic thing. 
And in an era where there's like no bipartisanship on anything, there's bipartisanship on regulating Facebook and doing something about Facebook. I mean, you have like Marsha Blackburn, right? Crazy town Marsha Blackburn, Republican senator from Tennessee, joining arms with Democrats to try to do something about Facebook, right? So, but they don't even know good. what they want to do on it, and that's the problem. Like, they're, right. they're okay with running. The, Marsha Blackburn certainly wants to run her ads on Facebook because her ads are appropriate. So she thinks, you know, and she's okay if someone else picks it up and amplifies it because she could say, "Hey, my hands aren't on this." At the same time, she's against, you know. Facebook, because it's not regulated, which is a funny thing for Republicans to be so for, it's just all over the place. So Lucy, a point you just made, I think is really interesting, um, which is, first of all, the fact that there's bipartisan support to do something about Facebook, uh, like, I think you're right. The the first thing you said about this was it's uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it's almost a proxy for all of the other fights that we're having. Republican and Democrat. Facebook has become the thing that we all just want to hate, and we're looking for a solution to all of the other problems. With now, that's not to say that you know I think there are some massive problems that Facebook is responsible for, and they need to be fixed. I don't know how, but. I do think it's it's really interesting to look at, you know, the reason that there's bipartisan support for this is because, you know, Republicans, Democrats, we're all looking at Facebook as a way to sort of uh, to, 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 to fight as a proxy to the other fights that we're having. Um, and I wonder, you know, Susan, to your point about this is this all comes down to Mark Zuckerberg. What did you both think of the um, the interview with Kara Swisher uh, on the person of Mark Zuckerberg? And how do you think that that is going to shape, you know, the person that Mark Zuckerberg is and what she, what she said about him in that piece. She's known him for a long time and what that says about where the company is likely headed. Yeah. I mean, she first interviewed him in 2010 or 2011. So a very long time ago and pre IPO, a pre what Facebook is today. And something that she said that I thought really kind of was the hit the nail on how the crux of what's at issue here. When we think about some of these decisions is that she thinks that he's, underqualified for the job. This is a thing that he fell into, right? And and he early on began talking about Facebook as a utility, right? And that's, he wants to view Facebook in that way. But really what he's set out to do makes him a social engineer. And he is fundamentally just, as she puts it, a technologist who is not equipped to be a social engineer. And And I think that that's a really interesting frame. Yeah. Susan, what did you think? Well, Definitely agree with everything that Lucy just said because what it it it, like, it peeled away at who Mark Zuckerberg is as a person and and again his qualifications and his mindset. He was never ready for prime time as far as being one of the most influential people in the world. I mean, you talk about like becoming president and how you have to have that yeah. exposure and you have to have the the, the experience. Mark Zuckerberg. Is as much as an influencer in many ways as the presidents of, of many countries. He he can he can influence the societal response to healthcare, a pandemic, to war, to revolution, and using that uniting tool. I mean, it, it goes back to his basic premise of. Oh, it's just good that we're all interconnected and woven into each other's world. But at the same time, there's, there's no responsibility of what happens when people get woven into each other's worlds. So I think, again, showing that he wasn't, this isn't, he's not meant to run this company. He may be able to do it in a way it comes to technology and develop it, but in no shape or form is he really qualified to run, to run Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Kara's takeaway, I think, was he's just not up at the job. Yeah. He's he is the wrong okay. person for this job at this time, and he's created something like Lucy. I think we, we this is we've talked about this many times, but you know, technology is only ever a tool, and uh, and what we do with it determines you know the the moral goodness or badness that comes out of it. And Mark Zuckerberg simply is just ill-equipped to deal with the many crises that his technology has created and which is why i think they've announced that they've that they're changing their parent company name um this new name is going to be announced later today um you know what um 
you know, presumably this is going to look something like the Alphabet Google situation where, you know, they they sort of distance themselves from the from the core product of Facebook and by extension distance Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook because he's sort of made a mess of it lately and everybody hates him. And and it allows him to sort of be hands off and they'll put somebody else in charge of Facebook who can take all the incoming heat and is maybe better equipped socially, intellectually to deal with the problems. But I wonder, you know, what type of positive shift do you think that can have on on public perception and uh, and whether this sort of emphasis on the metaverse is going to is going to work for them because it's very clearly an attempt to change the narrative i think for one thing one of the weird things about facebook is that mark zuckerberg still owns a huge amount of it right and so if you're other <laughs> if you're other stockholders if you're the rest of his board you have to tread very carefully around Mark Zuckerberg, even if you see that he is intrinsically linked to some of the problems in the company. And so Mark Zuckerberg, yes, I think he's acting on behalf of what he thinks is best for Facebook, but how could he ever separate that from what is what he perceives as being best for Mark Zuckerberg, right? There's an idea in business and especially in startups of the what got you here won't get you there, right? And what we probably should have seen was Mark Zuckerberg being gracefully... Um, shown a side room, not exited, mm-hmm. but shown a side room to work on something else. And so I think that it is possible, and we'll find out later, that this reorg, so to speak, is kind of the diplomatic way of doing that by other people in Facebook. I think it's going to have zero impact on public perception of Facebook, but I do think that it is a way to safeguard, from a business perspective, impressions of the other products, right? Like they own Oculus, you know, they own all these other they own they're they've made tons of acquisitions they're making more and so especially if they're going into this direction of the metaverse could be uh, i mean but i think it mostly will safeguard those other products i think that the metaverse stuff could not come at a worse time and i could be wrong about this but i think that right now as we're coming out of a global pandemic people are looking for in person interactivity not to go live their lives online. We saw an earlier attempt at this with something, projects like Second City and others. Maybe we just weren't there, the technology. Maybe I'm just biased because I have zero, zero desire to lead my life that way. But I would be surprised if if that kind of concept gets big time lift off. Okay. So here's, here's what I would say to that. Um, if I hadn't, uh, so my neighbor has an Oculus. Um, and recently, like last month, I was visiting and I put this thing on. And if I had not had that experience, I would be exactly where you are. Um, really? And I'm not saying, and I'm not saying I want that reality, but I'm saying, you know, uh, I put this thing on and realized that the technology that I thought was virtual reality has evolved light years ahead of where it was mm. the last time I experienced anything like that. And I could very easily see once they get the physical form factor right and the weight right, people spending their entire days in a virtual reality where you're in, you're in an office, you're taking phone calls, you're in meetings, and it's all just happening like in this headset on your face. And it's... and. Uh, it, it it was easy for me to see, you know, the steps from here to there, um, and uh, and so I, I think most people have not experienced that. These things are like expensive, and they're you can't do much with them right now because because uh, it's a development problem. You need more. The, te- the technology really exists. It's a it's a developer problem. You don't have enough people writing software for right. these. Things. Um, but to your point, I think the public narrative here is really bad for them because people do want human interaction. We want to be connected to each, to each other again. And the idea that, you know, Facebook is going to pivot out of their crisis communications woes by saying like, by describing the metaverse is really dystopian. I think to a lot of people, we can't trust you with data. Uh, we can't trust you with our own data. And evidence of that is that you can't be trusted with your own data. The most closely guarded, you know, company secrets have now leaked out. How how can we possibly trust you with our data? We're not going to give you all, every single movement and eye, you know eye movement and interaction we have in a digital world for you to um, mine. I don't think so. I just <laughs> I think that's a very very bad sales pitch, Susan. Well, I, a few things. One about what Lucy said about gracefully giving Mark Zuckerberg away out of the day-to-day um, aspects of Facebook is so important if they are going to make this change because it also allows the person 
that dominates the atmosphere and using his vision to control everything else when it comes to Facebook. So without that ever-present vision being there, you now move to operational. And that will be, I think, something that could, it's not going to change overnight, but you could be a lot more responsive because you don't take it as personal because it's not your baby. It's not what you've created. Um, The idea that he's gone from the kid in the hoodie to about, you know, testifying in a tie and jacket in front of Congress is, is a transformation that he just wasn't ready to make. And I wonder if now, if he goes into something like the metaverse, he goes back into being the kid in the hoodie. And maybe, as, as uncomfortable as I am with everything, if he really wanted to do a huge reset as he's developing this, He should be developing it with regulators, like make it open, make it like this is part of our society and and, and basically show like if you're putting together a new uh, grid, electrical grid, like you have a lot of people looking at it. Right. So maybe putting getting that input is a way of, of fighting off some of the bad PR. But yeah, I don't think he'll ever do that. But again, it's it's that his need to control and his and and define that we're all good. And if he goes into the metaverse that way, he's going to have huge problems. On Sunday, Rolling Stone published an article about two of the January 6th rally planners who are communicating with congressional investigators who said multiple members of Congress were involved in planning both the events to overturn Trump's election loss and the January 6th events that turned violent. The two sources also said they communicated with Trump's team, including former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. They said that Meadows had an opportunity to prevent the violence, according to Rolling Stone. They said there were dozens of planning briefings ahead of January 6th. One remembered speaking to Marjorie Taylor Greene, or as our friend Jimmy Williams calls her, the margarine woman, specifically They said that there were members who participated in the briefings or had top staffers join, including Paul Gosar, Lauren Boebert, Mo Brooks, Madison Cawthorn, Andy Biggs, and Louis Gomer. A ProPublica reporter, Isaac Arnsdorf, reported that they received a membership list of Oath Keepers from an anonymous hacker and that the list included 10 sitting state lawmakers, all of whom are Republicans. Let me repeat that. They received a membership list of Oath Keepers from an anonymous hacker, and that the list, the membership list, included 10 sitting state lawmakers, all of whom are Republicans. These include lawmakers from North Carolina, Alaska, Indiana, Georgia, Arizona, Idaho, and South Dakota. So as these investigations unfold, how are you thinking about the role that these lawmakers played? And were you surprised uh, to learn that they are active members of the Oath Keepers, Lucy? No, I mean, this is something we've talked about on this podcast. We have talked about how, and and to be clear, they're state lawmakers. A lot of these are state lawmakers. So these are people who are living in your communities, going to your state legislature, making decisions about things that impact you in your communities far more than some, you know, guy on the hill having a steak dinner with the Facebook lobbyist. But no, I'm not surprised at all. And we have talked about how even though there is lots of evidence to suggest that all the kind of crazy town apparatus stuff of the Republican Party is not getting pick up sort of nationally by kind of the collective and that the Republican Party, there are really good signs that they, it is dying, right? And as Mike Madrid has said, it could become kind of a regional party of white supremacists, whatever. This one goes to that point, but two really, really drives home the point that that's not happening fast enough. And people like Steve Bannon are busy installing these crazy people. And I shouldn't even say they're not crazy. I shouldn't say that. I take that back. These racist, white nationalist, you know, nut jobs into offices. And it's not just state law, it's not state lawmakers, it's election clerks. It's, um, you know, like local precinct committee men, right? One of these guys is a lawmaker from Arizona named Mark Fincham. Guess what he's doing right now? He's running to be secretary of state, right? He is running to become the person to oversee elections. 
And it is going, it is permeating every level. This week, there was a video of a person at a Turning Point USA conference saying to Charlie Kirk, the head of the boy wonderkind of Turning Point USA, saying, earnestly, this was not a plant. And this is a video publicized by Turning Point saying, when can we start killing these people? These people meaning Democratic lawmakers, you know, members of Congress, you name it. This is by design, and they will continue to work to get these people into positions of power. They're effective, and we should not sleep on this. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this before, especially you know, when it comes to vote, you know, voting rights and election security. Like The thing that I am far more concerned with than anything else are the should be nonpartisan, always have been nonpartisan elections officials. Those posts are now being turned over and and they're and they're putting partisans in. The people who basically get to count the votes after the fact. That is the that is the massive vulnerability in our system. And those jobs have always been performed by nonpartisan bureaucrats who who know who who do a very routine job every single time. Uh, and and now they're trying to replace these people. Yeah, go ahead. Just just quickly, that this week I spoke to a strategist who's working on election clerk races, and they've done a big analysis, and they are looking at states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, a handful of states. They think that they can actually get the list down to like 20 election clerk races that people like Steve Bannon are really focused on, where these are not even like state, these are not even secretaries of state. These are like county election clerks or sometimes even lower levels of government, where if we all sleep on this and the Steve Bannons of the world keep doing what they're doing, which is working for them, that they could impact, like flip the result of a national election, not in 10 years, in two years and change. Yes. Susan, I want to know what you think about all this because it's kind of like we continue to be shocked, but we really shouldn't be shocked. And I wonder how you think we can start. It's really hard to start to think about how we can rebuild democracy when we can't even defend it against the ongoing attacks that are happening behind the scenes when you know people who tried to violently overthrow it are still in power. Well, I feel the same way I did a week after... Um, January 6th, when we were talking about it, Ron, follow the money. When Lucy's talking about narrowing it down to 20 county clerk races, that's not happening in a vacuum. That's being well-funded. There, There is a professional operation trying to network, as, whether you call them nut jobs or just extremists or whatever. There's something trying to, to not just play on those as the voters did, as, as voters like Trump did, but to actually network them into their next mission. And that's what they see this as. They see it as a mission and they are being professionally networked. When you look at this congressional uh, members of Congress who were mentioned in the Rolling Stone article that being part of the planning, and I think it was Mo Brooks who said, well, it may have been my staff, which is fine with me, but it wasn't me. Um, but again, I say, follow the money. Where does, why, why all of a sudden are they going to these meetings? Who's funding the hotel rooms? Who's funding all of this communication? I think Mark Meadows is really scared. Him more than out of the four that, the you know, top, like Bannon just wants to be, um, he wants, he, he, he wants, wants to be, to be a martyr. He'd love to go yeah. to jail for 30 days to, to for, for Trump. I mean, that will just increase his value down the road, he thinks. But mm-hmm. there are some, and, and especially lower level White House staffers or political people who are going to testify. And that is going to show an operation. And really, they've never really been good at organizing in, in a really good professional sense, but yeah. they... This but team, they're good enough. But they're good enough because they've had money behind it. And yeah. I think we're going to see the essence of a real tactical plan. And that's what you can come out of the hearings. And that's where that tactical plan is built on one network. And that's a political elected official network. And that's what they're trying to build up, expand upon. But how do you do that? You take the existing political network of the higher ups, their donors, and you fund it. So you have money going down and people coming up. And that is 
the most dangerous, frightening thing because if you if you politicize a county clerk, that that's like game over. That's city council races. That's like that. I mean, again, it's not Secretary of State, but it's really forcing issues. Plus, the violence that they talk about is equally disturbing because oh, totally, it's we're talking about people who are going to be poll workers, and you think you can kill them? Yeah, no. Oh, I mean, like. So if you think about it this way, it, the, the, the pillars of, of democracy, right? The bureaucratic machinery that resulted in the most secure election in American history, they see as the weakest point in their fight. They see as their vulnerability, which is why they're focusing on these unsexy posts, because they know that's the reason that they lost. That is what that is what made the whole thing work, and that's what they're after. And to your point about this getting more and more extreme in terms of rhetoric and, and calls for violence, earlier this week, Marjorie Taylor Greene was speaking with the right-wing uh, outlet Real America's Voice. I can't like, they keep coming up with these insane names. When she contrasted the protests last summer with the attack on the Capitol, she said the protests last summer were, quote, an attack on innocent American people, whereas January 6th was just a riot at the Capitol. And if you think about what our Declaration of Independence says, it says to overthrow tyrants. How should we be thinking about not only the, not only the minimizing the attack, but trying to use the Declaration of Independence to justify it and sort of insinuate that we're, there should be more violence? Well, I don't think Marjorie Taylor Greene is so familiar. I don't think she's exactly done a close reading of the Federalist Papers. <laughs> but the reason that they're saying these things is because we we have a problem with the base in, in the Republican base in this country. And at some point, you know, I will give anyone an off ramp anytime if they want to come to the table and say, "I've been wrong about this. I was wrong. I want to work toward." a solution. I want to fight the proto-fascism that has taken hold of the Republican Party. But I do think that we're getting to the point where we do have to start holding Republican voters accountable too. Because look, Marjorie Taylor Greene is in a district that is very, very red. She really didn't have a serious challenger. Maybe that will change. Probably won't. So she's an outlier. But we do see that only nine of the 200 plus Republicans in Congress voted to hold Bannon in contempt. And you also have people like Jim Banks, who is a Republican congressman from Indiana, who uh, was was not selected to be on the January 6th Select Committee. But it turns out we learned last week that he has been sending letters to like regulators and others asking for information and signing the letter as ranking member of the January 6th committee. So you have these Republican lawmakers either overtly doing stuff that is illegal and is really out of step with any kind of deference for the rule of law, or you have, you know, that's like the Jim Banks and Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. And what's scary about Jim Banks, I knew him 15 years ago, he was not like that, right? So this is, they're all on a journey, right? Or he was good at hiding it. Or you have the other 190 Republicans, some 200 Romans who will not hold Bannon in contempt for not complying with a subpoena. And so at some point you have to start saying, wow, this is at such a massive scale that we have to think who is electing these people, <laughs> right? And we have to start holding our, I think, friends and neighbors, I don't want to say accountable, but we have to start forcing them to have these conversations because it's a democracy if you can keep it. And the people who have to keep it are each individual American voter. On Tuesday, the experts on their advisory committee recommended that the FDA authorize the Pfizer-BioNTech's coronavirus vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds. This still requires final approval by the FDA and the CDC. It does get us closer to vaccine access for about 28 million children. And according to the New York Times, Biden administration officials see vaccines as a critical step to keeping schools open and getting back to a more normal family and work life. The top CDC vaccine official, Dr. Amanda Cohn, said that COVID-19 is, quote, the eighth highest killer of kids in this age group over the last year. 
Pfizer's clinical trials for 5 to 11-year-olds showed the vaccine was over 90% effective in preventing symptomatic COVID-19, and children in this age range would receive a dose one-third the strength of what's given to people 12 and older. Moderna has conducted a study in children ages 6 to 11, which showed a strong antibody response, in, and they're submitting those results to the FDA for approval. So we've seen schools as the battleground for some of the biggest culture wars over the last year, and they are ongoing, uh, from trans people being able to play sports to mask mandates to teaching about race and slavery. As we expand vaccine access to almost every school-aged child how do you both see the vaccine mandate conversation about children becoming a bigger part of the culture wars? Susan? Well, we're seeing it now. You have elected officials in Florida, for example, talking about getting rid of all vaccinations because it's just such a political turning point. What I like, for example, is how some states, though, know the issues about what's going on in the schools right now and are finding different ways to kind of get the vaccination done outside of that realm. For example, in New York, Governor Hochul said she's probably she, she's not putting up big vaccination tents for for kids. She's requ- she's relying on the pediatricians to give out mm. because they if you're taking your kid to the pediatrician, which you have to do yearly for to, for them to go to school for getting the shots and everything and vaccinations you have to do. That's part of the process. So their interaction with the vaccination will not be coming from the government for most children. It'll be coming mm-hmm. from their pediatricians. And that is a really important step. Again, I can't emphasize this enough. It's so important that the CDC and the government regulators really stay on a tight message about what this means. Communication is essential. They've been bumbling around since, you know, I can't even get into the Trump era, but even under Biden, there's been so much information coming out and they really just need to regulate it better and not speculate. But this is the point where if we could get kids vaccinated, it's a game changer and it will become part of our our yearly lives like a flu shot in the future. But again, this going into these schools, I think is a very difficult you know, environment as it is already. And it, it, it could, it could lead to some, some eruptions that turn violent as the mask issue has. Yeah. Lucy, you think about this a lot. How, how, um, how do you see it playing out? Well, I think that what Susan just said about how entities, how government agencies like the FDA and the CDC are communicating about this is really, really important, and we should not lose sight of that. For instance, this week, the panel that approved the vaccine for for children under an EUA, an emergency use authorization, one of the the, um, commissioners said that he was worried, and I believe this is the, the one who abstained, and he said that he was worried because he was worried that this approval would cause vaccine mandates for children. Well, that is not your job. Your job when you are voting on whether to grant any drug, vaccine, medical device, whatever, an emergency use authorization is to look at the data and say, is this safe and is it effective, right? So what a local policymaker at a school board level or a community level decides to do that's not your problem. Stay in your lane. <laughs> so that's one thing. I think that the example from New York is really interesting. So I think pediatricians are going to be really, really important in this. And it's really going to be up to pediatricians to really communicate to parents about the importance of getting vaccinated. And it's a tougher sell because there, there are 28 million children who fall into this age range. But kids mostly don't get terribly sick from COVID, most parents are saying, many parents are saying. If higher antibody counts, we know that. Right, right. And so, and this vaccine is half the strength, but there's a lot of misinformation about the fear of a of a heart a heart condition coming from this, right? And so if you're a parent and you don't have the all the information and you're thinking, okay, well, my kid is probably not going to get that sick. And I'm worried about this kind of outside chance of this heart condition that you really don't have enough information about. It's it's a harder sell. And and I was really interested in um, but but it's so important because experts think that getting children are these huge vectors for vaccines. Yeah. And you don't have to like be an 
epidemiologist to know that. You could just yeah. have school-age children coming home and infecting the whole family with whatever while they get over it quickly. But so that 30 million-ish block of kids, that's a really, really important demographic to help us get to something that could resemble a more national herd immunity. But one thing that is where I think we still see we have a lot of work to do is that parents are really, really split on whether they're going to get their kids vaccinated. You have like 30 some percent of parents, I think 37% I saw in a poll the other day saying, absolutely yes. You have 35% saying absolutely no. And then you have 26% who are maybes. So we've got to really focus on that bucket, I think. But one of the things that most surprised me that shows this is a really different kind of battle of information than other kinds of COVID response and pro-vaccination um, messaging is that only 61% of parents who are themselves vaccinated say that they will definitely get their kids vaccinated. So that means that almost, you know, more than more than a third of parents who themselves are vaccinated aren't sure they're going to make the same choice for their kids. So this is going to be a trickier landscape. And, and I think it is really going to be up to people like pediatricians. You know, it, yeah. it's funny, just another group that was hesitant um, with the vaccination early on were pregnant women because they really didn't feel there was enough data. And, and some waited a long time. Some didn't get it and some did. But I think when it comes to, to your children and the, and the data that Lucy just mentioned shows it, people were willing to do it for ourselves very easily and take that responsibility. But maybe... I'm not so comfortable just yet for my my child. It's a different it's a different standard because you make your own choices for yourself. It's easy, but it's it's like the opposite of what happened with the polio vaccine. Um, because mm. with the polio vaccine, it was impacting children, right? And people really got on board because it was this illness that was just ravaging children, right? And and so people were getting their kids vaccinated and. And even just the whole response to polio was, it's, it was like all about the kids, right? And people don't feel like COVID is all about the kids. And so the decision matrix is different. Yeah. The question is, do you, do you feel like you know enough? Do you feel like you have enough information? And that's, that's really, you know, we, we've already talked about the, the, the information problem, right? Around all kinds of things. So <sighs> overall, does this make you feel more hopeful or? Uh, less hopeful about the pandemic at large? Um, I'm actually more hopeful that there will be a significant amount of children being vaccinated. And again, everywhere, every place that we can bump up those numbers, it will lead to, again, some kind of normalcy of COVID. Uh, we're right now, most important, besides seeing the numbers of COVID cases go down, what we're seeing is hospitalizations like being slashed by 80%. That is so important. And that's where that, that it was that taxation on our, not taxation, but it was, it was that emergency crisis situation of hospitals being filled and not having rooms and not, or, or machines to, to save lives, which made COVID such a dangerous frightening thing that we went into a lockdown. The fact that kids can now go to school and you're not worried about it coming back into households, especially multi-generational households, is fantastic. And I, again, I think it gets us back to our new, whatever our new normal may be, it will help us get yeah. there. Yeah. Lucy? I'm, um, I'm cautiously optimistic that we are getting to a place as we expand vaccine eligibility, as we have much more data, where we can have more nuanced conversations about what to do about the ongoing the ongoing threat and how big of a threat or small of a threat it is of COVID. There's, um, there's an essay this week in the New York Times by a researcher about how, you know, maybe we should start talking about hybrid immunity. Maybe we should talk about how maybe people who have had COVID only need a partial vaccination in the vaccination set. Maybe they only need one shot. And I think that that actually really goes to um, increasing public trust. And, and, and part of why people like Dennis Prager or people on the far right, or actually just the middle right, have been successful 
in just spreading massive amounts of disinformation, like encouraging people to go get sick with COVID, which is obviously just bananas, is that there is a sense, and it is sometimes, I'm going to get in trouble for this, true, that there are people on the far left who never want the pandemic to end, right? Could like never see a world in which we're not masked all the time or whatever it is. So I think that being in a level playing field where we have almost everyone in the country is eligible for a vaccine, we have copious amounts of vaccines, and we're now being more sincere about things like the potential for hybrid immunity or, you know, letting places kind of like relax mask mandates a little bit because we're in a better place. I think that 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 kind of more nuanced discussion and not just politicizing every discussion of COVID, not just like making anyone who suggests maybe they're done wearing a mask the enemy or, you know, I think that that is, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about that. And I I'll t- probably get flack for saying no, that. I t- I t- well, so be it. I totally <laughs> agree with you. I think I think the fact that there are more nuanced conversations happening is evidence of progress. Uh, I think I think that's I think that's really true. Now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what we're watching. And uh, I want to go first this week because yes. I actually have something, <laughs> which is this. Un- I mean, I, I stumbled across it this morning, which is why I want to talk about it. Tucker Carlson has announced this epic piece of propaganda that he is responsible for producing himself. Um, that claims to be the documentary on the truth behind the January 6th uh, insurrection. I, Luce, I the, Your facial expression tells me you have not seen this yet. There's a trailer circulating on Twitter that he posted last night or early this morning. Um, and, and literally it's a, it's a, it is a, it's a, it's a piece of propaganda that is going to claim that January 6th was the false flag operation. And, and that we're now, you know, that, 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 that the left is hunting the right and it is absolutely insane. And it is just evidence that this thing we're experiencing is going to get worse. It's going to get so, so, so much worse. And I'm not talking about the pandemic. I'm talking about the, the, the insanity on the right. Yes. It might be a small and dying star, uh, but there's going to be, there's going to be more mayhem. Wow, Ron, like, this is- I was just feeling hopeful about the end of the pandemic and now you put me this. I'm like, back down there. <laughs> it's but a pandemic you- of disinformation. <laughs> yeah, pandemic of dis. That's exactly what it is. And this, anyway, this film is going to uh, apparently drop release wherever it is. I don't know. I don't know what their distribution plans are. Um, November 1st is when it's supposed to come out. I imagine it's all going to be on the internet and streaming because I can't imagine a theater actually playing this garbage. But it looks like it has a very high production value, which, which means a lot of people are going to watch it because it's going to be sort of, yeah. So anyway, that's, um, uh, you're going to hear a lot about that coming soon. My confession is that I years ago saw Dinesh D'Souza's movie in a movie theater. <laughs> okay, they played it in a movie theater? Yes. Oh. So if they played Dinesh D'Souza's movie in a movie theater like 10 years ago, wow. they're probably going to do something bigger for Tucker's little yeah. film. Yeah. So that's, uh, yep, okay. So sorry to be a downer. Uh, what do you got, Susan? Um, well, I know we're going to talk about this a little later on. The New Jersey and Virginia races. But it's what I'm looking for, not just there, but in other um, suburban races, whether they be in New York or even delicate races in Virginia, where there's a lot of swing districts, is what's going to happen to those center-right independents and the Republicans who we worked so hard at at Lincoln Project to go to Joe Biden? What are they doing? Are they going to stay? On and vote on the Democratic line, which was hard for them to do in 2020. And, and, and to Lucy's point, like holding voters accountable, like what, how are they going to do that? Like, and, and what they're going to do is so important to me because independents have been leaving Joe Biden in droves. I mean, we see that nationally. We see his approval numbers really low. And if he is losing those center right independents, especially, he doesn't get out of the mid 40s. 
And not that Donald Trump ever did, in case everyone says, oh, well, Donald Trump. He's not Donald Trump. And you're at a 50-50 Senate and three, uh, excuse me, and, and you're at a three-seat majority in the House. Like, no, these, this, everything will change come 2022 unless Biden can can do something about it. Yeah. Lucy, what are you watching? Well, sorry to be a downer again, but culture wars, culture wars, culture wars. And that theme takes us to Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis this week announced that he's offering money to uh, would, to $5,000 in recruiting bonuses to law enforcement officers in other states who are unvaccinated, who um, who want to... Uh, who want to go, who, who quit their jobs basically over their refusal to, or were fired over their refusal to get vaccinated, they can come to Florida. And he said, they're happy to have you, happy to have, you know, these unvaccinated cops. It's gonna, they're going to be a, an asset to their force and they're actually going to pay them a $5,000 signing bonus. So if you're a snowbird or if you have parents who are snowbirds in Florida, just know <laughs> that Florida is not just saying it's okay to not be vaccinated if you're on the force, but they're actively recruiting unvaccinated anti-vax police officers to come be state troopers and everything else in Florida. And Ron DeSantis is planning to run for president and is a rising star in the Republican Party and has lots of money and gobs of consultants. And so Ron DeSantis is doing this because he thinks this is the way to get elected in today's Republican primary. So, so if you are immunocompromised or you yeah. are just think twice before calling the cops on a, on the kids across the street, right. having a party for a noise complaint, because okay. you might end up with COVID. Totally. <sighs> All right, Lucy, Susan, before we move over to the after party, AKA Politicology plus and talk about Virginia and New Jersey, where can everybody find you on the internet? Susan? Uh, Twitter at Del Percy OS. Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. 